Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. This psalm is broken up into basically two parts. The first is one through seven, which are two stanzas dealing with the wisdom of living for the Lord. And then in the verses eight through the end, there is some practical righteousness, how that wisdom can be applied in meaningful ways. We're going to listen to the first stanza of the psalm, the first stanza of the first half, which deals with wisdom. This is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Hear the word of God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and, he sa- and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Then again, let me offer to you these words from Psalm 34. It's the verses 1 through 3. So the first stanza of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. I'll magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. May the Lord now add his blessing to that word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in a few moments we're going to witness again baptism. We're going to see the water of baptism administered. And when we do that, we read the form for baptism in order to remind ourselves of what it is that the Lord has promised in this water to uh, Vela, to Maverick, and to everyone who's been baptized in their time. And we'll also hear the call in that form to respond. We'll be reminded that as in all covenants, there are two parts. So in this covenant, there is the promises of God, but also the obligations of those who are so blessed. To be blessed by the Lord in the water of baptism means that we are to respond, as the form will remind us, in gratitude, in love, in faith. And we have in our text this morning a passage that helps us put some flesh on that bone to understand what it means for God's people, for all of us who have been baptized, 
to respond to the promises of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Indeed, this entire psalm serves as a response of David's to God's goodness towards him. We're only going to focus on the first three verses, but in those verses, we'll hear what it is that the Lord wants from Vela, what he wants from Maverick, what he wants from us all. How we are to, in worship and in all of our lives, live in light of the water of baptism. And those words, those words of David, begin with verse 1 and his sense of amazement at what it is that the Lord had accomplished on his behalf. He boasts, we see, he boasts in the Lord for what he has done. And it is such a grand boasting that David offers to the Lord here. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, of course, this is poetic literature, and we shouldn't imagine that David went around singing every moment of the day hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Yet we ought to be impressed, I think, about how David's joy in the Lord is so ebullient, so enormous, so extensive that it is with him at all times. We have to ask ourselves in light of David's words, if this is our experience, if this is how we feel about the things of the Lord, do you say after worship on a Sunday, after seeing baptism again, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually in my mouth. That is the kind of response, that is the kind of joy That is the kind of thanksgiving we want for every member of the congregation, surely. We want it for Vela. We want it for Maverick. We want it for everyone. It is our hope and prayer as church community, as families, as parents, grandparents. It is our desire as Christians to see every member of the church praising God with a heart full of joy to be as David was here so completely enraptured by God's goodness and grace. So how did David get to this place? How do we get to this place? How do these children who will be baptized get to this place? Well, we need to read to, for that, uh, to understand that from 1 Samuel 21, because that's where the story that heads this psalm is recorded, where David, you'll remember, had just begun to flee from Saul. Saul had committed to killing David. You'll remember the story with Jonathan and how he would warn David. And the warning came and David had to flee and and so he fled. And then you'll remember he came uh, to the place where the tabernacle was. He ate the, the showbread. You remember that story. That's all part of what's going on in the background of Psalm 34. He is suddenly facing the very real prospect of death. I mean, think of, think of David's circumstance, the most wanted man in Israel, hated by his king, with an army at his disposal, seeking this life to end it. David's life hung in the balance. And he fled from before Saul, and he fled ultimately to the Philistines. To Abimelech, as he's called here, that's probably the title of the king of the Philistines. He comes to the king of the Philistines in hopes that he might find security, safety there. And then do you know what 
David did. You remember that story? Maybe some of our children, our young children, remember this story because it's so very graphic, isn't it? How David is brought before the king, and then the king says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this David of whom they sang? Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of Philistines, remember. This is the man who has killed so many of my people. This is the man I hate. This is the man that should die. This is not someone I want in my court. And now David's life has gone out of the frying pan into the fire. He's about to be destroyed. His enemies behind him, his enemies before him, his life hangs in the balance. And did you remember what David did? David acted like he was mad crazy, like there was something wrong with his head, like he had had too many concussions or that there was some mental health concern in his brain so that his spit dripped down upon his beard and he, he acted like there was something really wrong with him. And Abimelech says, do I need another crazy man in my court? Get rid of him. And so David left, alive, safe. He escaped from Abimelech's clutches. He escaped from Saul. He escaped from Abimelech. He escaped by his conniving, by his brilliance, by his good choices. David was a smart man. But David doesn't say, aren't I a smart fella? Did you hear about what I did? Let me tell you that I just about died, but you know what? I David doesn't pat himself on the back. David doesn't take credit for this event. He doesn't see this in any way as a consequence of his ability. You can imagine if you stand for a moment in David's shoes, as his, hang, as his life there hangs in the balance, literally his heart moments away from ending, and suddenly the king says, get rid of him, I don't want him here. And David's eyes go heavenward and he marvels at his God. I will bless the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God who keeps promises, who has called me to be king, who has blessed me with his grace, who has saved me. Now you see, David saw in that very concrete moment the wonder of God's love and the marvel of His faithfulness towards Him. That's something that we need to see too, don't you think? Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're more like David, or we're more like the, the David I presented, this David that might pat himself on the back and say, aren't I brilliant? Look at what I've done. Too often, our praise to the Lord, our excitement about what God has done for us is diminished because we don't see God at work. We see ourselves at work. We look at our bank balance and say, I've made some good investments. We look at our family and we see their blessedness and we say, well, I did pretty good, didn't I? We look around at the circumstances of life and we pat ourselves on the back. We even do that sometimes when we face trials. We, we get sick. I can't tell you how many times in my congregation when someone is facing a very serious, even sometimes you might say a life-threatening illness, that they say to me this, but I have seen this doctor. They, my GP sent me for a consultation with this, 
this doctor, and they say that she's the best. It's almost always they're the best. This doctor's the best. Why is that so important to us? Because we have confidence in the hands of men. Because we say to ourselves, that's what will deliver me from this circumstance. Yet there are those moments, aren't there, where all of our circumstance of life is taken from us. All our strength, all our hope, all our ability. The Lord knocks out every one of our supports and leaves us standing in the circumstances of life like David between a rock and a hard place with death hanging in the balance and there is no hope. There is no hope save the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. And then in those moments, in those moments we find ourselves on our knees pleading with the Lord. Maybe it's a loved one in the hospital. Maybe it's a situation we find ourselves in business or in our marriage or in our home and we are pleading with God, Lord, there is no one who can save me but You. And the Lord comes and in His power delivers us. And our hearts are filled with joy. And our mouths are filled with praise. We don't feel as close to God in any other moment of our lives than in that moment. His Word is in our hands. His prayers are on our lips. We celebrate His grace and goodness. Isn't that your experience? Hasn't that been your experience? That's been the experience of surely of some of us here today. But shouldn't it be all of our experience? Shouldn't it be all of our experience, especially in light of what we're about to see in the water of baptism? Because God is going to say to Vela and to Maverick, who are sinners, who have no hope, whose lives as they stretch out before us are only of certainty this, trouble, sorrow, grief in this curse-stained world. They will be selfish, proud, arrogant. They will make mistakes and they will do things that bring or incur the judgment of God against their sin. And God knows all of those things. He's known them from the beginning. He knows their lives better than we can. And even though He knows the darkness of their hearts, in a few moments He's going to say, you are mine and I am yours. And to you I've given the promise of deliverance. I've given you the grace of my Son, Jesus Christ. I have lifted you out of the pit, out of the miry clay, out of the darkness of sin. A darkness greater than Egyptian slavery. A darkness greater than financial poverty. A darkness so great it grips the hearts and minds of men so that they cannot see, hear, or believe. And yet God says, to you I make this promise. You are mine and I am yours. And shouldn't all of us who understand the enormity of that promise join in David and say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. What other response can we give to the water of baptism than praise the Lord for His grace and goodness in Jesus Christ? Indeed, shouldn't that be our witness to others? David goes on to say, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. There's an encouragement, David believes, there's an encouragement to his boasting, an encouragement for other people. 
For the humble, he says. The humble here uh, has almost a very technical sense to it. It's, it's not just people who think less of themselves. That's unfortunately what we think about humility. When we speak of humility, we tend to think of humility as someone who says, oh, I'm not very good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody that's poor and impoverished in some respect. I'm not a, a particularly able person. That, to us, is somebody who's humble. That's not really the biblical concept of humility. I mean, the most humble man in the Bible, we're told, is Moses, and Moses was a pretty stern fellow at times. He could do some pretty tough things. But he was also a man who thought little, that is, he didn't spend a lot of time thinking about himself. He wasn't focused on him and his life and his circumstance, certainly not after the Lord had worked in his life in his desert wanderings. Moses was so focused on the Lord and on the Lord's plan and purpose that he devoted himself entirely to that. But the humility of which David speaks is yet of a different sort. The humility of which David speaks is precisely that humility wherein we have no hope, we have no possibility of success, where we have been so broken down and burdened that all of our, our expectations for deliverance have been removed. All of our plan A, plan B, plan C are gone the wayside, and there is nothing left. We are hopeless. That is the kind of person David has here in mind. And he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble, let those people hear and rejoice. Which seems a bit of a strange thing, doesn't it? David, the great king, the anointed of God, the beloved of God, the powerful, the mighty David is valued by God, surely, above those that are in the pit, those that are in the gutters, in the ditches of life. Why would those down here be encouraged to hear that David had been delivered? Surely it's the opposite. When you hear that somebody who's extremely wealthy, someone who's very powerful, when you hear somebody uh, who has used their, their power to accomplish whatever ends they desire is suffering, don't you have a little bit of schadenfreude? Don't you think, well, it's probably good, isn't it? We're, we're grateful at the, at the misery of others. And then when they're delivered from that misery, we don't rejoice. We, we say, well, why do they get off and I have to suffer? Why do they uh, manage to experience blessing and I don't? We're more like Psalm 73 in that respect. We, we struggle with the plans of God for those who are in positions of power and wealth. But you see, David understands precisely why it is that the Lord has delivered him and that it is nothing to do with David, his position, or his priority, that it has everything to do with God's plans and purposes, with God's faithfulness according to his covenant. And so David says essentially this, if the Lord can save me, then the Lord can save anyone. If I, who am nothing and undeserving of every blessing, can be delivered by God in His grace, then anyone who's struggling right now should be glad because they also can be delivered. That's what David's saying in verse 2. That's what David's encouraging those who are struggling with. And that's what we need to do as God's people too. That's how we need to encourage those around us. It is a bit like those moments in life when, 
we go through a particular trial and then we discover other people that have been in that trial too. Sometimes you have that. Sometimes, sometimes you can have a very strange and odd sort of illness that you think is, is unique to only you. And then somebody says to you at church on Sunday, you know, I had the same thing. Or I have a cousin who had the same thing. I know somebody that went through the same thing. And there's such an encouragement in that, isn't there? There is such a, a blessing to know that others have walked this road and have come out the other end that you are now being called to walk. We find, don't we, in the encouragement of those who have been in the position we're in, just something better, something more, more meaningful for our hearts and our souls when we're going through trials. It's always lovely when people come to us and say, well, we're praying for you and we trust that the Lord will bless you in this and we know that He's going to deliver you from this. But it is especially those people who have been there before. It's their words that seem to resonate most with us. And shouldn't that also be then the spiritual experience of those who are humble? That is, when we come into contact, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, when we come into contact with those people who are despairing, who are discouraged, who are down, those people who see no hope or no help, when we come to those brothers and sisters who find themselves in a situation of life where the foe seems insurmountable and the situation seems hopeless, shouldn't they hear from us as those who have receive the water of baptism, as those who have been delivered by God, shouldn't they hear from us a boasting in the Lord that makes them glad, that makes them encouraged and thankful for what the Lord has done? That is, do people hear from us as members of the church, as the covenant community of God, do they hear from us a sense of such wonder, of such thanksgiving, in the Lord, that they say, well, if the Lord can bless this guy, he can bless me too. Or do people rather, when they meet us and they hear us, do they think, well, their encouragement is tied to conditions. Their encouragement is, is met with certain requirements. I know what you're going through. Let me tell you what you should do. Let me tell you how to solve this problem. I have wisdom. I know what to do. Are we pointing people to ourselves when we encourage them? Are we giving them our advice and our wisdom? Or are we showing them that God is so good, that God is faithful, that God is able, that God can save even in this circumstance of their lives? Maybe we don't run into people who are in such despairing and desperate circumstances, and that's okay. When we do, we ought to be able to speak to them a word of encouragement. But surely that word of encouragement should be given to everyone. Again, think of Vela, think of Maverick, think of these families and their call to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. The form for baptism speaks of that too. Parents teaching their children what it means to belong to the covenant. And shouldn't that message from us as parents be not God helps those who help themselves, but let me tell you the story of how God has redeemed me. Let me tell you how God has been good to me. Let me extol the Lord before you. Let me boast in His faithfulness so that our children say it is God who is great. It is the Lord who is faithful. It is Christ who is glorious. Do we not show to our friends, to our community, to our coworkers that in the end, our boasting is not in self, but in the Lord? 
Too often our boasting is in self. Too often we give off the impression, we give off the vibe to others that if they just got their life together like we do, then they'd be blessed. But whether it's a coworker, friend, or family, whether it's a classmate at school, or a child in the home, everyone should know from us, from our work and witness, that the only reason we're blessed, the only reason the Lord has been good to us, is because of His unbelievable, unexpected, glorious grace. I didn't expect it. I didn't deserve it. I haven't earned it, but God is good. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. We're not that kind of people very often. We tend, as Dutch Reformed folk, to be a little more reticent. We tend to be a little more private in matters of our faith. And that was something a hundred years ago when the culture was such, but it is no longer acceptable now. We need to be a people that tell the world, it is nothing to do with me. Let me tell you, let me boast in the Lord that the humble may hear and be glad. And then we need to invite them ultimately to church. Verse 3 says, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. David here invites every and any to come with him to church. Magnify the Lord. Let us exalt from I, from me, to us, to with me. David now says, let's go to the house of the Lord and let's offer the sacrifices to His name. Let's praise His name for He is glorious. David is so excited about what God has done for him, so amazed at what the Lord has accomplished for him, that he wants the praise of God to redound with voice upon voice, with company ever larger and larger with the praise of his name. David says, come with me to church because God is worthy of your praise too. That's something that we sometimes struggle with, isn't it? That need to invite others to join with us in worship. We don't always find ourselves saying to that coworker, to that friend, especially those that may be going through difficult times, you know, you ought to come with me to church. We know that this is the place where the Lord in His mercy speaks to His people. We know that this is the place where His grace is poured out, as we'll see in a moment. We know that the Lord is good to all who come to Him in worship. We don't always find ourselves quite willing to say, hey, hey would you come with me to church? And sometimes I think it's because our perception of what worship's all about has become implicitly works righteous or self-righteous. That is to say, when it comes to our understanding of worship, we default not to a proper understanding of worship, but to an improper one. Because why do we come to church? Why, why have we come to church today? Maybe we've come because we want to see a baptism, because we're family, we're friends of those who are having their children baptized. We want to celebrate this family occasion. But why do we normally come to church? Why do we Sunday after Sunday? Why are we going to come to church this afternoon? My guess is that if you ask our children, if you ask our grandchildren, why do we go to church? You might get an answer like, well, we have to hear the sermon. Because we have to learn what God wants us to do. Because we have to learn about His will for our lives. And of course, that's true, isn't it? That's something that we do. We spend our time thinking about what God's will for our lives is. 
But so very quickly, we make worship about what I get out of it, the lesson I learn. Sometimes we leave church and we say, well, I didn't really get anything out of that sermon, which is an indictment on us, by the way. If you've ever said that, that is an indictment on you, not on anybody else. We say it because we think coming to church is about learning how to order our lives properly. I need to come get information. I need to be told what to do. Getting the information, I can then go out and live properly, well. I can live in a way that is blessed and that blesses. But what if the very first purpose, not the only purpose, of course learning, of course hearing the will of God, of course, but what if the primary priority of worship is just this, to praise God? That's it. Just come to church to praise God. So that when our children say, why are we going to church? You say, well, we've got to praise God. We've got to go magnify the Lord together. We're going to go exalt His name. But why, Dad? Why? Let me tell you what the Lord's done for me. Let me tell you what the Lord's done for you. Let me tell you about how great God is. Let's go to the house of the Lord together with God's people and let's thank Him for what He's done. And when we have that mentality, that, that ship shapes rather the way that we worship, certainly, that shapes the way that we enter into God's house, that shapes who we take with us in worship. In our congregation in Wellamport, we have children upon children upon children. And you can, cannot sit in a worship service in our church without hearing somebody cry, yell. We have a lovely foster child in the congregation who loves to make noise. And people say, well, that's just distracting. That child, they should put them in the babysit. And it's really easy to just turn them to Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babes, God has ordained praise. The Lord wants to hear the praise of His children. He wants to hear the voice of His sons and daughters extolling His name. And that's why we can witness to our neighbors and our coworkers, our friends and family who are unbelieving and say to them, listen, you've got to come to church with me this Sunday. Why should I come to church with you? Oh, you've got to praise God. You have got to join. You've got to join with me. Because God deserves so great a praise that the sound on a Sunday ought to be the sound of churches singing. There's a lovely video on YouTube from the Olympics when they were in Vancouver and Canada won the Gold medal against the Americans. I don't know what day that was on. It might have been on a Sunday. I don't know. But there are these cameras set up around Vancouver. The sound of these videos is not from the stadium itself. It's from outside of the stadium. And you can tell the moment the winning goal is scored. Because the noise that just erupts in that city tells you something great has happened. That's what we want for the Lord. That's what David wants for the Lord. He's on his way to church and he's like, come on everybody, let's go. We need God's praise to be great. We need to magnify. Not a little bit of praise, a magnification of God's praise. Exalt the Lord. Let's praise Him together. That's what we want for our children. That's what we want for everyone who receives the water of baptism in their time. Come to church with us. Let's praise God together because let me tell you, He's baptized you. 
You belong to Him. He looked at you in your sin and He says, I will put my love upon this child. You have to praise God. You've got to join us in praising God. Come, learn the songs. Learn the, the way to worship. Learn how to pray. Learn how to listen to a message. Learn how to praise God together with us. But then say to that neighbor, that coworker, you've got to come too. I don't have a reason to praise God. Oh, yes, you do. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Do you understand that the Son only rises because Jesus died on the cross? Oh, that doesn't make sense to me. Let me explain to you why it's true. Come with me and let's see the glory of God together. So that in the end, David's response to the Lord's faithfulness and grace towards him in Jesus Christ the faithfulness of the Lord to His covenant, which expresses itself most powerfully and beautifully on the cross of Calvary and in the empty tomb, in the water of baptism, in the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. That grace of God in Jesus Christ moves David to great praise. And it ought to move us to great praise too. So that with David we say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. Amen.